Welcome to the Screaming Into the Mic podcast, a medium normalizing the expression of women's anger. Soraya Chamali writes, gendered ideas about anger make us women question ourselves, doubt our feelings, set aside our needs, and renounce our own capacity for moral conviction. This podcast is where I take a stand and say no more through creating a safe space for women to share their rage in a public forum. I'm your host, Mary Abdul Malik Neal. I'm a musician community developer, and feminist activist. Join us for each episode as we talk with women about the struggles they face in work and life. We begin this podcast this season chatting with women in the arts. Thanks for tuning in. This episode features Heather Majuri, a local theater artist who most recently was in Ottawa at the Great Canadian Theatre Company, playing the role of Elena in The Unplugging in February. Heather is a non-status Indigenous person. She descends from Indigenous people never registered under the Indian Act. Her grandmother was the last person in her family to be enumerated as an Indian in 1921. Currently, Heather works at the Social Development Center of Waterloo Region as the coordinator of the Festival of Neighborhoods, and she has started a community-based applied theater laboratory called Two Minute Plays, where her focus is on housing precarity and homelessness. This is screaming into the mic. Ah! Hello, Heather. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to have this conversation. So, um, as you know, this podcast has been uh, funded by the Region of Waterloo Arts Fund, so that we can chat about the challenges that women artists have being artists in our community. That is awesome. I think we have to thank the uh, Waterloo Regional Arts Fund for giving us this space and this place to be able to talk about these things honestly and uncensored and in a good way. Totally agree. And I'm ready to jump in. How about you? Excellent. Let's do it. All right. So I wanted to start with a quote from Soraya Chamali's book, Rage Becomes Her, just to launch our conversation because it really made me think of the work that you do in community. So the quote is, if a woman is angry in her, quote, place, as a mother or a teacher, for example, she is respected and her anger is generally understood and acceptable. If, however, she transgresses and is angry in what is thought of as a man's arena, such as traditional politics or, or the workplace, she is almost always penalized in some way. And I know you share a lot of emotion, including anger through your theater work. Um, tell us, tell the audience, the list, our listeners, about your artistic practice and how you challenge men's arena within your work. That's such an interesting question because. I never actually see myself in competition or opposition to men. I don't know how men feel about me. So I think that's where, you know, where the room is and how you're read can be so different depending on 
how people, what filter people are seeing you from or the work that you're doing from. So, um, yeah, I've had some interesting experiences in my life with, I think, being misunderstood as an artist, but I think more often just kind of ignored. Hmm. Um, so that has always been a bit of a frustration, I think. Um, and I, I've never known, I mean, I started out, I started out in theater, um, in my early twenties. I, I did some work when I was younger and it was all wonderful and I got to do summer stock and it was fun. And so I can't complain. Uh, but it was in my early twenties when I, uh, became artistic director of Windsor Feminist Theater that I started to experience some of the pushback that happens through the patriarchy. Mm. And um, we were often celebrated as well. And we had wonderful supporters who were male allies. So again, I can't, you, you just can't ever, nothing is one way or the other or just, you know, black and white. But I do remember I was, this is a long time ago. <laughs> Please share your stories. <laughs> this is what we're doing here. The early 1990s, I guess it was. And um, uh, the Montreal Massacre had occurred. And so for people who this is like ancient history to basically a gunman went in and um, shot a lot of engineering uh, students who were women and blamed it on feminism. And so after that, uh, I would field phone calls um, at my workplace um, basically telling me how, what a hero the the shooter had been. And that was my first real um, understanding that people weren't so happy about women having voice or women asserting themselves or competing uh, in male-dominated fields. Uh, and I had also, uh, my first degree was in communication studies and dramatic arts. And as an actress, that is to a degree acceptable. So it's not Shakespeare times anymore. So, you know, women were playing their own genders. So that was acceptable. But to move into positions such as producer or director was never quite so comfortable. And I liked to be a director. So, um, and I asserted it. I was too young to know the difference. Um, and that was early on. Uh, and then in in television, so my, my first degree was in communications and mostly focused on television production, a little bit of radio. And I always found that there was this technical divide Part of it I put on myself, for sure. Like, I definitely had some internalized messages about what women um, were capable of doing in the technological arena. So I would challenge myself in my own head. But you would get mostly microaggressions around your abilities. And so, you know, one or two microaggressions is not a big deal. Uh, it's usually the accumulation of them where you finally kind of say, okay, I'm kind of done with this. But I also had really good experiences, too. So it kind of all balances out. Um, my work now really depends on what, I, what I'm able to do in what context. So right now I'm focusing on um, housing precarity and homelessness and uh, trying to create space that will give voice, um, not just to anger, but to frustration, 
to hopelessness, to uh, possibility, to um, whatever comes forth that is necessary for people to start to understand and see what they haven't seen before and be able to address our housing crisis in a way that isn't about hiding or uh, denial. Which is really powerful as a way to do that with theater. Like, talk a bit more about that idea of moving politics into theater. Well, it's always a challenge because uh, even though theater by its very nature is a political uh, arena and it is a place where points of view are presented, uh, it, it can also be a, a place where um, various forces wish to control what is presented. So it can also be a place of censorship. Uh, so with this project, and spe specifically, we're going to be working to ensure that uh, when it is not comfortable for someone to be seen, then the, the stories are presented through dramatic forms in ways that protects the identities of the individuals that are sharing their lived experience that is being transformed into um, small playlets that will be performed to produce knowledge as well as create some understanding and hopefully inspires some actions towards change that makes sense. Um, so depending on the piece, sometimes it's incredibly important for the storyteller, the originator of the story or the holder of that story to be able to be seen. So hopefully we're going to be able to do both, if that makes sense. Um, and theater is one of the venues and one of the mediums or ways that we can actually present rage and anger in safe ways, I guess, is the best way to describe it. I don't always have the vocabulary I would like to have. And um, I hope that the work that I, I end up supporting uh, gives us a whole range from rage to joy and back again, because the full human experience is one that is often very textured and very layered and almost like a roller coaster ride. So, uh, but rage and anger and fear, they're all a part of the mix. And do you have a personal connection to this? I do. Um, when I was in, just uh, in university, like I think a lot of people, especially people who, the, their first generation uh, uh, university um, folks, um, it was very hard when I went to school, but I was very lucky compared to now. I don't know how students do it now. I honestly don't. Back in my day, back in the 1980s, uh, there were there were grants and they were they were fairly good grants. And if things got really bad, you could declare bankruptcy. Bankruptcy's never fun. I don't recommend it, but it was at least a mechanism for uh, dealing with student debt if it was really gone haywire. I know that there's still mechanisms now slightly, so it's not completely dire. But when I hear about the debt that students are, are walking into the world with, it's just highly likely they'll never own homes. And um, so I think my first bout with housing precarity, obviously, was when I was in university for the first time. 
Um, I then landed myself in a domestic uh, shelter, domestic abuse shelter for women uh, in my mid-20s, which then rendered me homeless. Uh, I was very lucky. I was never unsheltered. I always had a great large group of social, what I call social capital. So there was always people there. So I was able to you know, rent a room or stay on a couch or uh, move from here to there. But it was destabilizing and it it did make life very difficult. And then uh, when I got pregnant and had my daughter, we ended up homeless five weeks after she was born. So um, it was at that point when I really realized that something was systemically wrong Uh, because it didn't make any sense that this is what was happening. And it was thanks to OW. It was thanks to the way OW communicated with me. Um, Back then, (laughs) I keep saying that back then, I'm just realizing how old I am now. So my daughter's like 27 years old. And um, I became her mother in 1996, which was when Premier Harris came into power. And Yeah, Premier Harris had a war against single mothers, and he did a propaganda war, essentially. It was an advertising campaign, um, which was uh, to lower the OW benefits and the family benefits. And it was kind of like mimicking what was happening in the United States with workfare. So it was all that kind of neoliberal rollout. So, um, so you know, I gave birth and walked into Harris's Ontario. So... Uh, I became really sensitized to uh, the systemics around housing and homelessness. And uh, we landed in some pretty precarious situations. I'm happy to say, obviously, my daughter's 27, so we made it. But, you know, we we went through a lot. And um, so for me, housing and homelessness has always been one of those issues that I wanted to tackle. So in uh, 2013, I did my master's and I I started looking at using theater of the oppressed uh, and legislative theater specifically and held kind of a small little community laboratory that was part of my thesis. Um, But it was never it wasn't satisfying to me. It was lovely. We we did a few small um, things to few small experiments. And, but there was some really wonderful work. So I know that there's really important things that need to be said on this topic and that it has to come from people with lived experience. If it's coming from a theoretical place, which is all very important as well, it's just not going to have the same impact that the transmission of actual lived experience will have in terms of people understanding how systems are either not functioning, are dysfunctional, are, uh, or where there's gaps, and also where there's a lot of misunderstanding. Absolutely. And I'm excited to see that you are offering a place for a whole host of range of emotions to come out. In That's what I hope. Yes. So this is great. So your next project is just an extension of your master's work. Mm -hmm. And you received a grant for that as well? I did. I received a grant from the Upstream Fund. Amazing. Yeah. And I received a grant from the Region of Waterloo Arts Fund. (laughs) So Awesome. So I want to ask you a couple of questions now. And 
Okay. I'm, I'm trying to decide what order to ask you in. Okay, since we're talking about funding right now, mm-hmm. let's talk about the challenges for funding oh, God. for artists. So it's almost impossible, which is also why I wanted to work on housing and homelessness because so many artists land in precarious situations because there isn't enough funding. And since there isn't enough funding and there isn't living wages, I mean, most artists are stuck in the gig economy. And the gig economy might be okay for like, you know, your extra income or something, but it is a nightmare for any sort of stability to be able to function uh, doing the work that you do best. And I think a society flourishes when people are actually using the skills that they know the best. And when we don't fund the arts in any sort of truly meaningful way that's sustainable, you end up in a situation where some of your brightest minds are not being put to good tasks. So, um, so yeah. So to me, arts funding is is extremely important, and it feeds the economy. I don't know of a lot of artists that are actually putting money into shell companies or putting their money in overseas bank accounts. I just don't see it happening <laughs> that much. Um, so I, I think that we are starving right now in our current society um, where if we put a little bit of effort into looking how artists at a local level especially can give back while um, performing tasks associated with their arts, um, our entire society would be better off and our local economy would probably flourish as well. Um, We all know arts are a part of gentrification, which is also a dilemma when it comes to housing, if you don't plan properly. Uh, But artists tend to make neighborhoods better places to be. I really love the connection that you're making between like housing and artists and the importance of that vibrancy and building that community. Um, Yeah, so I wanted to ask you kind of, I guess this is the meat and potato question of this. Okay. Ready? Yes. All right. So I wanted to ask you about the bumps along the road in your journey to being an artist in (laughs) the region of Waterloo, because this is primarily what the podcast is about, although I'm loving all the things that we're unfolding today. So I am, uh, I am an import to Waterloo. I never knew anything about Waterloo or Kitchener until I moved here. Um, I lived in Windsor. I lived in Toronto. I grew up in the Ottawa Valley. Um, To me, Waterloo was a water tower on the side of the 401. (laughs) So So what brought you here? uh, A job. Okay. Yeah, truly. I was living in Killaloo and I had just uh, um, been in the middle of a uh, land claim negotiation, which had gone sour. And I was living with my daughter in a very small town, Killaloo. And uh, I knew I had to find work. So the campus community radio station was hiring. And so I applied for their manager's position. And I landed in Kitchener, Waterloo. So that so I and I was there for about six years. And then the radio station was defunded. Uh, So (laughs) so that is actually when I started um, doing more kind of theater while I was in radio and, and raising my daughter. I didn't have time for theater. So I did a couple of community projects. So I was staying connected and I had a lot of fun. 
Uh, but then I had to hit the pavement and try to find work. And I didn't drive. So not being able to drive was a real challenge. And that it's those small things uh, that people don't think about. There's uh, lots of barriers to being able to do the things people think you can do or you even think you can do if you don't have certain basic supports. And so for me, one of the biggest things was driving. Uh, you know, I took the bus everywhere. That's not the issue. But it did limit what I, where I could go and what I could do and what kinds of jobs I could take. Now I drive, but I'm also 58 years old, so things are different. Um, so yeah, so that's when I started taking a lot of arts admin work. And the funny thing is when you do arts admin, probably less now because uh, there's so much change in the way we do work, but it used to be, especially in the performing arts, very stratified. So if you were considered an administrator, you weren't considered an actor or you weren't considered a director uh, if you were kind of in that stream. So you kind of became everybody's secretary. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's changed now. Yeah. I think we do all the multiple roles now. But back when I started, especially, you kind of had to be in your lane. So, um, so I did a lot of arts admin because that was something I could do. Uh, and I had to learn along the way as well. Uh, even though I'd been uh, artistic director at Windsor Feminist Theatre in the early 90s, you know, time had passed. Um, and so I was always learning and relearning. Like when I, would, when I was in television, uh, we didn't even have, we had really large editing suites where you had to punch in all the numbers. But I do remember it was like, 1990, I think, when they when they got the toaster, which was a switching machine that would, you know, give you nice little, you know, fade in and fade out, some little fancy computer generated stuff. That was pretty exciting. Now, of course, you can you can put everything in a box and away you go and you can pretty much produce anything you want. So I think that the entire landscape has changed. And um, so then I just started doing whatever work I could. So I worked for Empty Space. I worked, um, I, I took a couple of theater jobs when they came as an actor. I came back from Ottawa just this past uh, winter and did a show up at Great Canadian Theater Company. I don't get a lot of acting gigs anymore. I'm a woman. I'm 58 years old. Um, We're going to come back to that. <laughs> <laughs> but I am very grateful because obviously I did have a role this this winter. So I consider myself incredibly lucky. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was always patchwork. And I think most artists are either doing patchwork jobs and running and chasing the cheese. Gigging. Gigging. Yep. Or you have a day job. Yep. <laughs> and this becomes your second kind of gig. Yeah. So it's unfortunate because as well, you, you end up never being able to completely focus on the work. No, that's a lot of energy that you're taking to run around and do administrative kind of tasks to try to get your name out there, to try to like find the, the gigs, to try to like to try to promote yourself. Oh, then. <laughs> and then if you have a day job, this is the thing that you do on the side of your life because... If you have a day job, you might also have children and you might also have like a, like yeah. a lot of other things yeah. that are pulling your attention away. So you really can only give so much attention. That's right. To That's the right. work. And so I think you also end up, you know, always kind of in a certain amount of attention deficit. 
and definitely adrenal fatigue. Um, And even though I'm always really grateful for whenever I'm funded, it's never enough. And it's it's at best poverty, at best. Um, I did a one-woman show in 2015, and I was on Ontario Works at the same time. And that was the only way I could make it work. And so, you know, I don't think people think in those ways very often. Um, they see the end product and they go, oh, well, that was really great. Or, hmm, could have been better. Or all of those things. But they have no idea the amount of labor behind and the amount of resources required. Or it's like it's become something that's glamorized, right? Like totally. you're on the stage and you're doing all this. But the amount of work and the amount of like... Even even if you're not on the stage, even if you're just producing like in the basement of your house, for example, <laughs> or, you know, in the garage producing your music or whatever it is, this is all the work that nobody sees behind the scenes, right? That's and right. Yeah. it's, it's uh, I agree, it is very challenging to, because now you have to know not only your own, your own skill set, but you have to know how to write a grant application. Absolutely. And you have to be able to speak that speak while you speak promo speak while you speak your art speak while you're I feel like I'm always code shifting. Yes. And and it's and I'm not I'm not always successful at it. And you know, I'm in competition with a whole bunch of other people who are doing the very best they can. Who are younger than you. Yeah, well, yeah, th- that's well, a given. And their, <laughs> their brains work faster. And that's fair. But, uh, but we're all in this together. And that's That's the tough part, because when you're dealing with um, resources that are when you're dealing with austerity and scarcity and those kinds of uh, economic constraints, then, you know, people can become very competitive with one another when in reality, the issue is that there just isn't enough. Yeah, the scarcity mindset for sure kind of pits artists in competition with each other. You know, we have all these funds. There's only a certain amount in each of these funds. We have to compete with each other rather than working together. And I think that is a huge challenge we have, especially in the region of Waterloo, because I feel like our resources are not as plentiful as larger places like Toronto. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I just don't understand. It's like, why don't you even, you know... Even if artists could make a living wage of even, and it's not a living wage, but I'll, I'll put it out there, $24,000 a year, which would be $2,000 a month, which still wouldn't get you most rents. Right. Unfortunately. The other half of this topic that you are trying to address. Right. Um, <laughs> but it would be a start and, you know, try it. See see what artists can produce. See what kind of work they would want to engage with. Um, perhaps artists could be um, put to task to civic work. I don't mean like, I don't mean like Ontario works, and I don't mean in a shaming way. But, you know, I think even at 35000 a year, right, all of a sudden you would see so much happen and so so many amazing things. We would see lots of community engagement, I think, as oh well, right? Because there would be um, space for artists to be able to have that vision of being able to go and gather people together and create art in meaningful ways in public spaces, 
Whereas now, the only time we we would be able to really do that is if somebody funds us to be able to do that. And then we have to really scrape and scrounge to do it. And we have to really make a good (laughs) case as to why this is a good reason for for, for us to get money for this activity, right? So, um, no, this has been really interesting, Heather. Thank you so much. Um, I guess one of my questions is definitely, what are the steps of making this community more inclusive for artists? I mean, you named a few things here, like potentially having, you know, a living wage Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. idea. Um, What about, um, like you were saying before, your struggle is like as a 58-year-old woman, it's hard for you to find it's hard for you to gig. Absolutely. And for, and, and I mean, this is why I've, I've tried to, to begin the community-based laboratory. My hope is that I'll do some training of the trainers, so to speak, and be able to build some capacity that would allow this to exist as an ongoing project that isn't simply about um, producing a show. Shows are important, so I'm not dissing shows. Uh, but we process is as important, if not more important, for community engagement and for bringing people in to the artistic process and for stimulating the brain and for making sure that we have the kinds of empathetic connections that actually build a city and make the city a place you want to be in and build. Oh, I can't agree more with this. Right? Build relationships in where you live. That's what arts do. That's that's our main focus. We're, we're therapeutic, we're social, we're political. I mean, we're the breadth of all those things. I mean, if you, again, Day Without Art used to do this all the time, right? You'd have your one day without any art. So people could start to see just how the arts permeate everything. And you don't realize it until it's not there. And then you go, oh, it's not just that one big Broadway production, you see, and I'm not dissing Broadway, and I'm not dissing all the big arts. I'm just saying that it's really important That's to just remember, one type. right? That's one type of art. It's one, and it's it's not the only way people apply those skills and those learnings and those talents. They get applied in many, many different ways. And some of the best work I've ever seen that really has shifted my life has been very small, very tiny, in small spaces, very intimate. Um, and they've been it's been across the board, depending. It can be many different types of, of uh, expressions. So, yeah, I just think, you know, I don't, I don't have any magic. I don't have any magic bullets for anything. I wish I did, but I don't. Well... Heather, this has been a great conversation. Um, Speaking about rage, yes, the world has a habit, and we all have it. We all do it. But the world has a habit of you, 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 should, should, should. Oh, you mean like Twitter? Yes. (laughs) I call them dueling monologues because people aren't, aren't actually seeing or hearing or feeling. They are just doing you, you, you. And then they develop an echo chamber. That's right. Should, should, should. And nothing changes when we when that's all there is, when there's only that echo. So my hope is over time, as we build community in a laboratory, 
then we can start to build the conversations that are needed that can actually make some change while we look at the effects on ourselves. The body speaks. Oh, amen, sister. And people often aren't listening. Yes. (laughs) Yep. So if we can start to kind of reorient ourselves back into our bodies and back into our sensory mechanisms, as well as extend, I, when I, one of my biggest frustrations, I have nothing against reports. I write them all the time. However, the written word, although a beautiful starting place, especially when there's a good novel, um, but a beautiful starting place for my imagination, it doesn't necessarily communicate the impact of anything because I project onto the written word. So I project my own life onto the written word. But when I can see the other human being in my, in my midst and I can see the face, and I can see those impacts. Um, there's a difference. There's a really big difference. And then we all know that music, especially, absolutely communicates um, our state of being. Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's it communicates our tone. It communicates yeah. all the things that a written a written piece of paper is never going to do. So um, so then when we take these uh, stories. Further, we're going to be using a democratized processes um, and consensus processes to move the stories forward. And, and then we're going to be working with um, social workers to uh, create the wraparounds that will help everybody unpack what they see. Everybody, everybody is so um, competing for the little amounts of time they have Mm. that doing what would be a protected and regular kind of schedule for a rehearsal and a development process is so beyond our possibilities right now that we've literally, we are doing things in these small modulated moments. Yeah, I feel like this is a bit of what kind of happened post-pandemic, right? We, (laughs) (laughs) our schedules kind of exploded imploded I they did yeah we aren't we didn't learn anything do you remember in those first few days of the pandemic how everybody rested yeah we we learned that we don't like to rest did we ever <laughs> people are just running like crazy just running oh heather thank you so much for this conversation it's been amazing thank you for sharing your personal stories and what you're up to and we i'm sure our listeners will look forward to hearing more about your laboratory space thank you so much thanks for having me thanks for joining us for this conversation to learn more about how to connect with our guests as well as resources mentioned during the episode check out the show notes if you are enjoying this podcast and are a woman local to the region of Waterloo looking for a safe place to release your anger, check out our Facebook group, Screaming Into the Void Waterloo Region. The link is in the show notes as well. Don't forget to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore the journey of women in the arts.